Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Blanchett. This episode features content from an educational webinar titled HIV Studies Influencing My Practice Following ID Week and HIV Glasgow 2022, featuring Dr. Chloe Orkin from London, United Kingdom, and Dr. Baba Femi Taiwo from Chicago, Illinois. In this episode, the faculty will discuss data presented at the conferences, including new findings on HIV prevention strategies, long-acting therapies for treatment, and investigational agents. For the full online educational program, including downloadable slides, please visit the link in the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what Dr. Orkin and Dr. Taiwo have to say about new HIV data from ID Week and HIV Glasgow 2022. Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Jennifer, and thanks. Uh, welcome to everyone who's uh, in the audience. We'll be talking first about HPTN 083, which, as you all know, is the large international randomized trial that looked at long-acting carbotegravir versus TDF-FTC for uh, PrEP amongst MSM and transgender women. Uh, this trial, uh, you'll recall, showed superiority of long-acting carbotegravir during the blinded phase, as a result of which the study was uh, changed and was rolled over to the unblinded phase. And now we have data, uh, as shown here, covering the blinded phase and one year following unblinding that continues to show superiority of long-acting carbotegravir over TDF-FTC with a hazard ratio of about 0.34, meaning about 66% lower infections, risk of infection in those recipients of long-acting carbotegravir. The current analysis is looking at biology and pharmacology data in 52 infections that occurred amongst uh, patients in the uh, one year or so post uh, during the unblinding phase. And amongst those infections, 18 were in the carbotegravir arm. And the first thing I'd like to point your attention to is that uh, this current analysis that includes 18 individual, 18 new infections in the carbotegravir arm included three cases of integrase mutations, which has been important because integrase, we know that the backbone of our HIV therapy, frankly, now. And so resistance to integrase is something that we want to know about. And then if you look at the small table here, you'll see that the infections that occurred in the carbotegravir arm actually occurred in different scenarios. Most of the infections occurred in individuals who were more than six months post their last carbotegravir injection. Also, according to some individuals who were delayed for more than 10 weeks. But there were also two infections in individuals who were, that occurred despite on-time injections, which we had seen before in earlier reports. And so the bigger table now puts together all the cases of integrase mutations that have occurred in the context of HPTN 083 and really tries to let us understand what the risk of this uh, resistance emergence is depending on the time point during the trial that somebody got infected. So the first uh, column shows those who were infected while, um, because they got, they got carbotegravir while they were infected, essentially. They had occult HIV infection, received carbotegravir. There were six of those individuals, two of them had uh, resistance mutations emerge. Some got infected during the oral leading, three of them, there were two of the three that had resistance mutations. Importantly, those individuals who acquired infection despite on-time injections of carbotegravir, all the six individuals developed 
integrates mutations, which is important for us to keep uh, in mind. And also equally important is that those individuals who got infected after being, uh, after experiencing delays of at least 10 weeks, or whose infection occurred at least six months from the last injection of carbotegravir, meaning that they didn't have carbotegravir recently, none of those individuals, a total of 19, had instant mutations, which is important when you consider the current guidelines uh, that we have in the United States saying that if you've ever been on a carbotegravir injection and you acquired HIV infection, we really have to keep the concern about uh, transmitted or acquired resistance in that context. This data suggests that maybe individuals who really have passed who haven't had injection in a long time, in this case, over six months, that their risk of having resistance mutations is low. But those who get infected in the context of having no missed doses, the risk of resistance is extremely high. Let's move quickly to another important study that looked at awareness and use of PrEP among cisgender women in the United States. A large study was done on social media above 961 participants uh, late last year, with most coming from the Western part of the United States. And these were individuals who were assigned female at birth and reported uh, penetrative sex in the past six months with unknown negative HIV status. The first, first uh, table here shows us the frequency of condom use. And if I just direct you to the lowest column that says all of the time, only 16% reported condom use all of the time. And if you think about, look at the next uh, table shows the HIV risk perception, 56% perceive themselves as very unlikely to acquire HIV and 29% said somewhat unlikely. So the perception of risk was rather low. But I think the key thing that might impact your practice and should impact your practice now um, is that only about 54% said they had ever been tested for HIV. So if you pull all of this together, it means we have cisgender women who are at risk of infection, many of whom are not using condoms consistently, many of whom have low self-perception uh, risk of, of infection. And so we have to be mindful of that when uh, counseling our patients about risks, etc. But also importantly is what is the awareness of PrEP and what is the usage of PrEP in this uh, group of individuals, the cisgender women in the United States. Interestingly, 70% had heard of PrEP, which is somewhat encouraging. We would hope that 100% would have heard of PrEP, but 70% had heard of PrEP. But what is quite disheartening is that only about 20% had ever taken PrEP. So there's a discordance between hearing PrEP about PrEP and taking PrEP. So 70% had heard about PrEP, 20% had ever taken PrEP. And if you look at what they were taking, you'll see that those who were taking oral pills and only 30% reported taking 30 doses a month. So it's really uh, something that adherence has been poor with oral regimen. And when you asked, uh, when the women were asked about their preferences, they, it was overwhelmingly injection that was preferred. And when the prevention options were further expanded to include all the modalities available, condom was the most uh, preferred approach, followed by uh, PrEP administered by the uh, healthcare provider and then the other modalities. And then again, thinking about how you can translate this to your, to your practice, what were the reasons why women uh, who were interested in PrEP said they were interested? Well, the more, most common was efficacy. They thought long-acting PrEP is actually effective. But then about 41% said it was also effective at preventing other STIs. This is an important education point that our patients are thinking that long-acting PrEP maybe uh, protect them from STI. That is not true. So that's an opportunity to educate. Remember that. And of course, when you think about the top reasons for disinterest, these are some of the things that we would 
I naturally expect. Some people, um, some people may not find it convenient, but the key that one that we can intervene in is people think that they may not need to be on prep. So overall, what this shows us is that, and then finally, this figure uh, shows that the uh, factors associated with willingness to take prep includes being on the lower end of the income scale and also being on oral uh, prep uh, in the past. So overall, this study really shows us that amongst um, cisgender women, 70% have been, they are aware of PrEP, but only 20% actually have ever used PrEP, meaning there are many opportunities for improvement. Take-home points for prevention, HBTN, that important international study, really has expanded our knowledge importantly in these specific ways. Number one, we know that all breakthrough infections that occurred during or despite on-time injections were associated with integrase mutations. We also learned that, that when CAB initiation occurred in the context of undiagnosed infection, uh, that that can lead to selection of resistance mutations, but not always, not quite different from um, the ones that uh, break through despite on-time infections. But also importantly, those who had infections after six months, more six months or more after their last carbotegravir injection, they did not have uh, diagnostic delays, which we had been worried about before, and they did not have a resistance and mutations. Now, all of these studies, of course, pertain to people who were born male. We don't know everything yet about uh, people who were born female, so this, in, that little caveat is there. And of course, as I shared with you, 70% of cisgender women in this recent uh, study had heard of PrEP. Only 20% had ever taken PrEP, and actually even fewer were currently on PrEP, meaning that we have significant opportunities uh, for improvement. And finally, HCP administered long-acting PrEP was second most preferred H, uh, HIV prevention option after condoms. Uh, so I hope that you are talking to your patients about this uh, new modality. I'll now uh, hand over to my esteemed colleague, Chloe, to take over long-acting ART uh, section. Thanks, Baba Femi. And as ever, I learned a lot from listening to you. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, long-acting treatment. So the first study I'm going to talk about is a study that I presented in HIV Glasgow. And before you even look at the slide, the point of this, it's a multivariable analysis. And the point of it is try and predict, use what we know about people who have experienced confirmed virological failure so far to predict who might experience confirmed virological failure in the future. And it's a modeling approach. Okay. And I'll take you through it. So what happened is that pooled data from the FLARE study through week 124, ATLAS through week 96, ATLAS 2M through week 152, four participants that were exposed either to four-weekly or eight-weekly cabotegravir piperine were analyzed in two different models. The first model was the multivariate analysis, which included other parameters such as pharmacokinetics, okay, so to trough levels um, for both week four and week 44, so late trough levels. And the other model was a baseline factor analysis, looking at factors that were available at baseline only. Now, you may remember that in 2018, an analysis like this was performed and identified some factors, which I'll show you a bit later. But the, the reason that this is different is because we're incorporating, incorporating additional participants, okay, additional covariates, so such as late PK levels, and 
more time because people were going beyond week 48. So the first, first time we only reported up to week 48. So once significant factors were identified, biological outcomes we summarized for participants with significant factors according to combinations of these factors to try and work out how can these be used. So the first thing to say is the the, the CVF, the percentage who experienced CVF for Q4, Q8, and for those who switched between Q4 and Q8 uh, going into the Atlas 2M study, was overall 23 people, so a percentage of 1.4%, okay? And that amounts to an incident rate per 100-person years of 0.54. Now, it's important to say that the difference between receiving a Q8 versus Q4 amounted to one person per 200 person years. So it's a very, very small difference. So in terms of the expanded multivariable analysis, the first analysis that were performed uh, include virological factors, demographic factors, and PK factors. And the following factors remained significant. The other factors were eliminated from the model. So we can see whether you had ribavirin-associated mutations and the A6OA1 subtype were the strongest factors associated with experiencing CVF. We can see that the late troughs for both drugs and the early trough for cabotegravir retained significance. Now, importantly, um, what what didn't remain significant, which was significant previously, was BMI greater than 30. Now, this is important because BMI is very highly correlated with both cabotegravir and wolpivirine concentrations. So this probably accounts for it when, when you know, the fact that BMI wasn't, uh, didn't remain significant in this model. When you look at the sensitivity and specificity of having at least three baseline factors, what you see is that when you have greater than three factors, one in five people experience confirmed biological failure. One of the most important things to say is that whether you experience the drug Q4 or Q8, whether the dosing is Q4 or 8 weekly, this was not a factor in terms of determining the predictive outcomes. And this was eliminated from the model. So moving to the baseline factor analysis, so the things that you can tell as a clinician, the first thing is rupivirine rams, yes or no. The second thing is A6A1, and the first is ba baseline BMI greater than 30, modeled as a continuous variable. What you can see is that these three factors remained important in the baseline factor analysis. So in other words, when you don't incorporate uh, drug levels. So you can see once again that if you look at combining two or more baseline factors, what you see is the risk of experiencing confirmed biological failure is ex exactly the same. It's also, it's 19%. So it's almost identical. It's one in five once again. Okay. So what the bottom line of all of this is that whether you look at baseline at the three factors, or RAMs, A6A1 and BMI, or whether you include all of these PK factors, if you have on the baseline factor analysis, two or more of these factors, then you, you are at an increased risk of CVF, but not if you have zero factors or if you have one factor. So um, I'm going to hand over to Baba Femi now for the next study. Yeah, thank you so much. So we'll talk about the Opera Court, which is the first year of real world uh, experience uh, with carbotengvirin in the United States. 
And this study actually captured 14% of those, 14% um, of persons diagnosed with HIV in the US. So really large cohort. And it was done uh, between January last year and February of this year. Why that's important is that during that period, predominantly uh, the monthly uh, dosing was, uh, was available, right? The, every other month dosing just recently became available. So you can expect that to be reflected in the data set. Now, using standard definitions of confirmed virologic failure, which you see here, uh, the investigators uh, really expanded our knowledge. But first, let's look at the baseline uh, HIV RNA that the individuals, the participants had before they got the first injection. Important thing is that most persons, most of the patients had viral load less than 50, which is what you would expect because it's the uh, modality is indicated currently for people who are biologically suppressed. So most were less than 50. But there were some who were between 50 and 200. And I think we still define failure as viral load over 200 consistently. So it's understandable that many patients had viral load less than 200, about 7%. Now, what is quite uh, interesting is that another 7% actually had viral load at least 200 at the time they got the first injection, meaning that this was actually being used outside of the approved indication. And as I told you earlier on, you can see the dosing have been predominantly monthly and a few have been bi-monthly, et cetera. And so if you look at the results, the first thing that you want to notice is that about 10% of injections actually occurred out of the window, meaning it occurred out of the 24 to 38 day window that was allowed, about 10%. And then if you look at the virologic suppression results, when you look at the last HIV RNA uh, doing observation less than 50, whether the individuals, amongst individuals who started with viral load less than 50 and those who had viral load less than 200, you really had very similar uh, numbers, 95% and 94% were suppressed less than 50. And then when you use the cutoff of 200 at the last viral load available, again, those who started at less than 50 and those who started at less than 200, but 99% in both groups really uh, had valued less than 200 at the last point, meaning that it didn't really matter if you started at less than 50 or less than uh, 200. And so the third group, which is the group that again is being used outside of the current indication, are those who had valued at least 200 or more when they started this uh, carbotech viral pivirine. And you can see that even in that group, 91%, turns out to be about 19 out of the 21 individuals who in this group actually achieve suppression. Not indicated uh, right now, but it's very important for us to keep this in mind. And so moving on to, um, maybe I I'll, I'll move on and uh, hand over back to uh, Chloe to go take us through the Carlos cohort. Wonderful. Thank you so much. So this is a much sort of simpler, easier study to present. So this is a German cohort, a real world cohort based on paratagabriol pivirine use in Germany every two months. So people suppressed switch. Um, and we're talking about 236 people, most of whom received the oral lead in. And that was per patient preference. Um, 24 people had one known risk factor for virological failure and one participant had two risk factors. So they were well matched. Um, and in terms of, uh, in terms of the injection visits, what we can see is that 97.2% of people received their drug within the seven, seven day dosing window or earlier. And in terms of the late injections, six were covered by oral bridging. 
So moving to the biological outcomes at month six, what you see is that almost 90% were undetectable at week 24. In terms of biological failures, the percentage of this was 0.5. There was only one person who was classified formally according to the study criteria as a confirmed biological failure. And this person had a very, very large number of, of integrase inhibitors that em emerged. And it's not 100% clear why this happened because he didn't conform to the model that I just presented. He didn't have any of the factors. So, which isn't it isn't impossible because obviously, uh, as I showed you, the positive predictive value wasn't one hundred percent because there may be other factors that are also associated. The second person experienced confirmed biological failure, but wasn't classified within the protocol as a confirmed biological failure um, because this happened post hoc, um, and. This person developed uh, NNRTI uh, resistance mutations at, at failure once again, uh, didn't have any significant factors. So in terms of safety, tolerability and treatment satisfaction, what we can see here is that the adverse events were very similar to what was reported in the phase three clinical trials. Um, and we can see that there were six discontinuations due to drug-related adverse events. Uh, and two of these were related to uh, injections. So, so two of these happened during the injection phase and the rest of them happened in the oral lead-in. There were six events of discontinuation due to injection site reactions amounting to 2.6%. But what I would say is that the satisfaction scores measured on HIV TSQ were markedly increased uh, in a statistically significant way uh, uh, in a positive direction. Uh, so people were more satisfied by the end of the study than they were at the beginning. For the carousel study, which is the next study I'll talk about, this is a very large implementation study, uh, which is being performed in five European countries. So it's an open-label phase three trial, and people switched to long-acting cabotegravir-pivirine two monthly following an oral lead-in. So essentially, clinics, but not patients, were randomized here because it's an implementation study, studying implementation of, of this for healthcare providers. Um, were, were uh, randomized to two different arms. The first arm was intensive SWOT meetings, in other words, uh, sort of uh, meetings to discuss uh, the blueprint and how they were doing and how they could amend things and, and you know, really intensive support. The second one was sort of standard of care where the study was just monitored. Um, so the enhanced implementation arm versus the standard implementation arm. In terms of the population, uh, what we can see is that it is a 25% female population, 18% black, and 30% 50 years or older. Looking at the biological efficacy at month 12, what you can see is overall 87% uh, were undetectable. And what you see, there was absolutely no difference whether you received the enhanced uh, you know, support from uh, the study team or whether you just went on and delivered the therapy. No difference at all. Um, there was one confirmed virological failure in the enhanced arm um, with an NNRTI resistance for pivirine ram at baseline um, and no NCRAMs evolved. And there was one um, virological uh, failure which wasn't classified as a CVF um, and also emerged with NNRTI resistance plus the N115N integrase inhibitor ram. So in terms of adverse events, injection site reactions and adherence, uh, what we can see here is very similar outcomes to what we saw in the clinical trials in terms of tolerability. 
Um, like the Carlos study, very high proportions of injections occurred within the study window. You can see this was between 92 and 94%. Interestingly, this study was really conducted during the thick of COVID. Uh, in the winter of 2020 and 2021, in both of those winters, and there were 3% COVID-related protocol deviations, but no discontinuations or virological non-response events due to COVID. So COVID did not affect the outcomes. In terms of injection site reactions, as we saw in the trials, 98% are mild or moderate. Median duration is three days, as in the trials. And interestingly, 6% withdrew for injection reasons. And that's a bit higher than what we saw in the clinical trials. Thank you so much, uh, Louis, uh, for the terrific uh, presentation. Now we're going to switch and talk about Lencapovir, which I'm sure you all are familiar with. This is uh, the first-in-class HIV capsid inhibitor that its claim to fame is that it can be administered every six months subcutaneously. Now, this is one of the two major trials, initial trials looking at this compound. And this one is focused on persons who are highly treatment experienced. It has two arms, the randomized and the non-randomized cohort. The randomized cohort is the one that actually tested the activity of the drug by itself versus a placebo. And then the non-randomized really just had people go straight into the end point, which is what the, the, the end uh, regimen, which is the combination of and lenacaprovir with optimized background regimen. Remember, these are uh, patients who are highly treatment experienced with less than or with two or less fully active agents available to them from our four main ARB classes. Remember that also that lenacaprovir is already approved in the EU and uh, was approved in August 2022, and the FDA approval uh, we are uh, waiting for for that as well. And so we've heard results before from the randomized uh, cohort, but here. Uh, data looking at both randomized and the non-randomized cohort at week 52. And the results are very striking and impressive in that in this highly treatment experienced cohort, biologic suppression rate, whether measured by 50 or 200 cutoff, really was, was impressive. 78% at uh, looking at 50 and 82% suppressed uh, when using the 200 uh, cough, cutoff. Of course, there were some biologic failures. But equally striking is the figure that's in the, on the right side of the screen showing the efficacy by number of fully active agents in the optimized background regimen. And the reason it is striking is that regardless of the number of fully active agents that the participants had in their background regimen, so it didn't matter whether they had zero fully active agents, one fully active agent, or two or more fully active agents, regardless of the number, efficacy was still at least 75%. Meaning in those patients with zero, this drug almost by itself was achieved that level of efficacy, which is quite uh, impressive. And mean CD4 count increase was also quite uh, robust at, a at uh, almost 100. And so this is not a perfect drug, like we still are waiting for that perfect drug. And this drug, in fact, also has uh, some limitations. Resistance was uh, one of the things that, that occurred. And resistance, these are mutations that we were predicted in some of the in vitro uh, studies that happened earlier on. And some of these mutations are known to uh, hit the virus in that there's a loss of replicative fitness to some extent, but resistance had still occurred. But the other attribute of a drug that you must be interested in is the, uh, the, um, the adverse effect profile. And you can see here injection site reactions, including swelling, erythema, pain, nodule, induration, et cetera, were fairly uncommon. And when they occurred, they tended to be more like grade one or grade two, as opposed to grade three. Uh, most patients did not have 
these uh, injection site reactions, but one participant, only one participant discontinued, and there was smudging of other uh, adverse effects. But uh, as you can see here, no SAEs and no deaths were recorded. So this was a very, uh, was a successful study uh, that has shown that this agent, when used actually in, in this high experience patient, uh, did uh, very well, regardless of the number of active agents that the individuals had, very high levels uh, of virus suppression was obtained of about 75% uh, or higher. So I hope that you are anticipating this uh, agent in your practice and looking forward to incorporating uh, it. So the take-home points for long-acting therapy are here. In the MVA analysis that Chloe elo eloquently uh, presented, long-acting carbotegravir plus rupivirine showed that baseline rupivirine ramps and HIV subtype A6A1 were the most significant predictive factors of biologic failure with respect to this particular regimen. The carbotegravir and rupivirine trough levels were also factors, but not as impactful. And as she said, adding PK parameters into the expanded NBA model did not increase the predictive sensitivity. So you have enough really from the baseline factors to make a clinical judgment. Opera, as you heard from me, showed high efficacy of long-acting carbotegravir post repivirine in the U.S. court, including uh, when used off-label amongst unsuppressed initiation, unsuppressed ind individuals uh, at initiation. And 10% of first three injections were outside of the target window. You heard about Carlos, we showed high efficacy of the regimen uh, in the German uh, context with uh, almost with more than 97% of injections given within the window, low rates of discontinuation uh, for injection site reactions and significant increases in satisfaction. You heard about Carousel, uh, also from, uh, from Chloe, showing high efficacy and tolerability with similar uh, outcomes, whether uh, standard approach was used or whether there was an enhanced implementation strategy across uh, diverse groups of individuals. COVID had no impact on outcomes. And finally, you heard about Capella in heavily treatment experienced patients with limited treatment options, showing that lenacaprovia plus an optimized background regimen demonstrated efficacy in both immunologic and biologic with only one injection site reaction leading to discontinuation. And so I'll hand it back to Chloe to anchor the final step, uh, final presentations. Thank you, Baba Femi. Um, so we're coming to the end, everybody, and this is really very exciting. We are finally hearing about Islatrovir. This is what we've all been waiting for, and I'm really excited that it was presented at HIV Glasgow. I'm going to take the presentations in order. So the first presentation that was given was modeling and developing a simulation for the optimal dosage of Islatrovir in first-line and virally suppressed people with HIV. So what has been noticed so far and across the program, as you will have heard, is that many of the, tr the trials concerning Islatri have either been on partial or full FDA hold. And this is related to drops in lymphocytes um, for people on the PrEP program and effect, you know, C4 count declines in people uh, who uh, were on the treatment program. So this is trying to understand these findings. So Islatrophia triphosphate preferentially accumulates in lymphocytes, leading to apoptosis and reduction in cell counts, which is unrelated to mitochondrial toxicity. This is based on a year of work from the team. So the current study has evaluated daily dosing of Islatrophia in lymphocyte and CD4 cell models to simulate 
a treatment dose that would achieve enough concentration for both wild type and virus with resistance, the M184V or R mutation, and to suppress the virus within three days. So the first thing they wanted to do is see how much drug is actually needed to work for resistant virus and naive virus. And then what they looked at is the, ch the, the changes in CD4 cell and lymphocyte count versus a standard antiretroviral regimen. And they modeled this based on historic studies, many, many historic studies, and they made sure that it, it, it fit, fitted within the range that would be expected for studies of either treatment-naive or suppressed switch. And firstly, what they showed is that in order to get the, the, the virus suppressed well enough, a 0.25 milligram dose was absolutely as worked just as well as the other doses, the 0.75 milligram dose. So there's no problem in terms of you know, the ability of, the, of the, the drug to work. And then what they did is they predicted cell counts and change from baseline in Latrovir in ISL versus standard art ratios. And what they showed is that for the 0.25 milligram dose, this was similar to standard antiretroviral therapies. And they showed this for lymphocyte count, lymphocyte count as well. So what they're saying is that the 0.25 milligram dose is both good enough to suppress the virus and very similar in terms of lymphocyte responses um, to or indistinguishable in terms of it falls in the same confidence interview into same range as um, standard therapies. So then there was a clinical presentation. And what they did here is they looked at the P011 study, which is a first-line therapy study, a phase 2B dose-ranging study, which looked at three different doses, okay, 0 0.25, 0 0.75, 2.25, 2 and it was against Duravan 3CTDF, first-line therapy study, okay? You can see there's small numbers in each arm, but what they looked at is the mean change in total lymphocyte count and CD4 count. And what you see, if you look at the orange, the 2.25 milligram dose, is this was very similar to Duravarin 3TC TDF. But if you look at the 0.75 and the 2.25, you can see that there are drops here, okay? And they did not perform the same as a standard regimen. Now, at week 72, um, people were switched to uh, 0.75 milligrams through to 144, because that was the dose that was originally selected to go forward for phase three. So this means that those people who started off in the 0.25 milligram dose had an increased dose, and those people who started in the 2.25 milligram uh, group dropped their dose significantly. So what you see in the in the point uh, in the um, 0.25 milligram dose is their percent their their counts dropped because they were now receiving a higher dose. And for the 2.25 milligram dose, their parameters improved. So essentially what we're saying is that for the take-home points is that for the modeling and simulation abstract, 0.25 milligram reached effective doses for wild type and M184V virus, and it's predict predicted to have lymphocyte and CD4 cells effects similar to standard treatment. For the 011 study, a dose-dependent Islatravir effect on lymphocyte was demonstrated, which improved when you dropped the dose, and when you used a 0.25 milligram dose were comparable to Duravarin 3TC TDF. And that's why Duravarin Islatravir 100 forward slash 0.25 milligrams daily is being taken forward in phase three programs in both treatment naive and virologically stable uh, switch populations. Um, and I would now like to open the floor to questions.
So question for me, asking about the multivariable analysis and saying that um, those with two or more of the baseline factors can predict one in five CVF chance and asking about other factors that could be further validated because it, the, the model isn't predictive enough. So yes, I think it's a really important point. This model was first presented in um, 2018 and has informed the real world studies in which the CVF rate is about 0.5. So it was about 0.6 in carousel, it was 0.5 in Carlos, and it was around 0.5 in customize. So, and we can see there were less than five people experiencing CVF in opera. So taking this model into account has resulted in a lower CVF rate or may have resulted in a lower CVF rate than was found in the phase three trials in real world trials, which is really unusual. So I think the model is helpful but it doesn't capture everything. And that's because we only had 23 individuals who had CVF across a three-year phase three trial program um, with more than 1651 records. So it's like looking for a needle in a haystack. So we need more data, we need more experience so we can find other factors that may be associated. So th there's some questions on this latrovir studies. First one is, is there any data in women? Uh, in the phase one P0, P011 study, and the answer is it was almost exclusively male. It was over 90% male. It was a phase 2B study. Um, and then in terms of Islatrovia data around dosing, there's a question around the future uh, for, for higher dosing in shorter intervals and the long-acting program. So this question was asked. Uh, and the presenter answered that the program that's going forward is an oral program. It's important to note that these other trials aren't placed on FDA hold. The company can't speak about long-acting tri trials until they've heard back from the FDA on what's going to happen with the program. But the fact that they're moving forward and have actually found a dose of 0.25 milligrams, um, which is you know, f modeled as being the right dose for, to be, for efficacy or a good dose for efficacy, um, and at which there aren't lymphocyte effects suggests that if that could it suggests that that needs to be first tested in the oral program and then once they find out about the holds and the rest of the program they'll be in a position to try and work out whether they're able to try and find that dose um, equivalent dose in a sort of a more long acting way but I can't speculate any further because right now those trials are on hold or partial hold so I hope that helps. Thank you very much to Dr. Orkin and Dr. Taiwo, and thank you to our listeners for joining in. Please be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thank you and have a great day.